Hello, and welcome to this special edition of MLB Morning Coffee. This is your host, Greg Moraz, coming to you from the Ocean Avenue Studios in San Francisco, California. Because Major League Baseball is on hold due to the coronavirus, and there's really not a whole lot of news to report other than injuries, we've decided to go into a 30-part series. What 30-part series might you ask? Well, a 30-part series that gives the top 10 players of every Major League Baseball franchise. The next franchise on our top 10 list is the gold standard, the New York Yankees. World Series champions more times than anybody in history, the Yankees have a combination of iconic players in all of baseball and Hall of Famers spanning the decades. Joining me to give his top 10 Yankees list is Scott Reinen, co-host of the Bronx Pinstripe Show. Scott, what's going on, man? Thanks for doing this this morning. Hey, Greg, my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the uh, the, the welcome, and yeah, I'm excited to get this done. It's fun to start looking back at the uh, the allure of the Yankees and the, you know, the history is just, it's such a rich history that I know people have some Yankee hatred in their blood, but I think when you look back at what's happened, the reason that hatred is there probably is because of the the hardware that these guys have won, but there's some impressive names on the list. The thing to me about the Yankees and the reason why this top 10 list is more difficult than any other is that there aren't just two eras because a lot of the teams that I've been doing, they've had two main eras of success. For the Yankees, you have the late 20s to the mid 30s into the World War II era, all of the 50s, the early 60s, just a little bit of a brief break in the 60s and early 70s, then two titles in the late 70s that break in the 80s and early 90s, and then the dominance from 96 to 2001, and then the 2009 World Series title. So there is certainly a lot that you can go off of here, and there are players that I have in my list that span all eras. So I'm going to start off with my number 10, and this is a bit of a surprising one just because of the fact he only played for the Yankees for five years, but it's Reggie Jackson. And the reason why I picked Reggie Jackson is that he is Mr. October. He is one of the big reasons why the Yankees won their World Series in 77 and 78. To give a couple of stats on the success he had in those years, he hit 286 in 1977 with 32 homers, 110 RBI. In all of his five years with the Yankees, he hit at least 27 homers, with the exception of 1981, I should say. And in 1980, he had a career high, or rather, a Yankees high, 41 homers with 111 RBI and hit 300 before departing for the California Angels the next year. But the reason why he's on my top 10 list, he's Mr. October. In 34 postseason games with the Yankees, he hit 328 with 12 homers, eight of which came in the World Series. So that makes a lot of sense because I think when you think of Yankees, you think of postseason success, right? That's one of the the big the big uh, areas that you have to look because of the amount of winning they did and the championships that have come. So if you don't have a player that's won those championships, it's tough to put them on that list until you're me and you start with your number 10 player who has no championships, barely any playoff games, but was a staple in one of those down eras that you talked about. Uh, my, number, my number 10 is Don Mattingly, who was the captain before Derek Jeter. Uh, many people who are a younger baseball fan don't realize or don't remember the fact that Don Mattingly was the uh, the captain, um, you know, really of the uh, the early 90s, late 80s. He was the guy. He was the the big superstar uh, in New York playing first base, played 14 years. Uh, I think it was eight, uh, eight all-star games, won an MVP. So he's he's got the the statistics to to, you know, rival with anybody 
He played 14 years, was cut short really because of a, and, and a 14 year career cut short is pretty good, I'd say, but uh, with back and neck injuries. And, uh, you know, he was just the, the rock in some of those bad teams until they got up until 95. And unfortunately he was, he was exited by, uh, you know, the Seattle Mariners and what would become his, his, uh, his replacement at first base. But Tino Martinez was a big part of why uh, the, the Seattle Mariners beat the Yankees in 1995. And still to this day, the reason I don't like the Seattle Mariners. Yeah, I think uh, somebody that used to work for the Mariners, I can tell that there's a little bit of hatred that goes between those two organizations. But, you know, I think that's a great choice because people forget about Don Mattingly. People forget about, and he would be one of my honorable mentions, but people forget about him just because of what you said, the lack of playoff success. My number nine on this list is somebody that I had to research and didn't realize how great he was, but by all accounts, he has the best batting average of any catcher who logged at least 7,000 career plate appearances. That's Bill Dickey. He made the inaugural All-Star game in 1933. He ended up as a 11-time All-Star. He won seven World Series. He had a career 313 over 17 years with the Yankees. And he played in an era where not a whole lot of guys, with the exception of Babe Ruth, hit a lot of home runs. But from 1936 to 1939, he hit at least 20 homers and drove in at least 100 runs. He is known as probably one of the best hitting catchers in all of baseball, but he gets overlooked because of the era that he played in. He never won an MVP, but from 36 until 39, he finished in the top six of the MVP voting every single year. And I mean, he was a part of those Yankees teams that won the titles in the 30s. So a champion, an effective hitter, and somebody that was a staple throughout the late 20s and early 30s. Yeah, he's a guy that gets forgotten a lot. And by the way, my my next uh, number nine is also Bill Dickey. So we're going to I have a feeling we're going to have some matches here as we go as we go further. But Bill Dickey is one of the guys that is almost a forgotten catcher for the Yankees because he played before. Uh, you know, kind of carried the torch uh, over to Yogi Berra, gave the Yogi Berra is, is going to be on this list at some point uh, for the amount of winning and just an unbelievable player he was. So I think he gets overshadowed by him. But yeah, the amount of success that Bill Dickey had. And then you saw in 44 and 45 where, you know, he went away to, uh, to serve in the military and then came back. And oh, by the way, age 39, got onto another all star, uh, another all star team. So the guy was, uh, you know, a perennial all star and uh, and really, I think, was a big reason why. Um, you know, Yogi Berra had some early success too. He was definitely a mentor to him. Yeah. Bill Dickey is somebody that bridges that gap of great Yankee catchers. Like you said, from him to Yogi Berra and, you know, Jorge Posada, he's not on my top 10 list, but it just goes to show you the amount of great catchers in that organization over time. People think of Jorge Posada as part of that core four of Yankees of the late nineties and early two thousands. And he's not even considered in the top two greatest Yankee catchers of all time. Maybe not, maybe by some, but I mean, to me, when you look at the stat. He's not even top three, really. Yeah. Thurman Munson will be up there ahead of, uh, ahead of Posada in a lot of, in a lot of people's lists, I think too. So you're getting, you're, you'd probably get, it depends where, what era I think you go, uh, you know, who you're asking. But Thurman Munson's right up there as well. Like I said off the top, man, it's unbelievable with the Yankees. You have so many guys that think about the amount of guys that are honorable mentions that would be top five on a lot of other franchise lists. It's unreal. Yeah, no, that's the thing. Like Bernie Williams was a, a guy that I really wanted to put on this list very badly. Uh, we just talked about him on our last episode about being such an underappreciated 
player for the 90s Yankees. You mentioned the core four. That was a marketing effort that was uh, you know, led by some of the guys that were sem- selling memorabilia. And I have a feeling it was because Fab Five was already taken. So uh, unfortunately, they knocked somebody out and it was Bernie Williams when he was such an integral part of every single one of those championships. Uh, Bernie was just a, you know, a homegrown guy. Was definitely one that uh, you know I really wanted to put on this list. And then if you go down the list, Red Ruffing is an, another uh, name from the past. Ron Guidry was very close to this. Uh, and then if you're looking at guys who came over, like you said, uh, Reggie Jackson, and then uh, Alex Rodriguez is on that list as well. If you, depending on how you view the player. By the way, before we get to my number eight, did you have a chance on MLB Network? I was watching it uh, about two weeks ago. Do you have a chance to see the ninety, uh, or rather the seventy-eight uh, tiebreaker game? They replayed that like 20 times. Yeah, I didn't watch it on recently, but yeah, I've seen it a few times. It's pretty crazy. I'm amazed at Gidry's motion and how effective he was with being that lanky. I mean, uh, impressive for his era without a doubt. But number eight is the only starting pitcher that I have on my list. It might be the only starting pitcher that you have on your list. And it's really the one category where you don't consider you have a ton of iconic Yankees but he's probably the best of the best, and that's Whitey Ford. Whitey Ford had 236 wins over his career. He led Major League Baseball in ERA two different times. Ford's best year probably came in 1961 when he went 25-4 and with a 321 ERA over 283 innings of work. He won the Cy Young Award in 61, his only Cy Young Award, but he made... 10 All-Star games. He was the World Series MVP. He won the ERA title twice, like we said, and he's a six-time World Series champion. I think Whitey Ford is the most iconic of the Yankee starting pitchers. I agree. Chairman of the board. I mean, he's a guy that you go in and you're you're looking at what, um, what Whitey Ford has done as a New York Yankee, and you're right. One of the uh, – uh, and oh, I'm sorry, spoiler. My list is also uh, Whitey Ford. Apologies. The uh, I'm getting my. I think we're going to be aligned on a lot of these names because they're the next ones are just so very clearly obvious. Just a matter of ranking. Um, but Whitey Ford was one of those guys that yeah. When you think of Yankees and you think of Yankees history, you think of the great the great hitters. You think of the guys that have all the um, you know the 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 Hall of Fame numbers on the offensive side, but not as much with the New York Yankees. Do you start thinking of starting pitchers? Ron Guidry would be another one um, that that was on my fringe list. Andy Pettit, I've seen on some lists in the past, probably because of his postseason success and the amount of, um, you know, success that they had in the postseason, as far as volume, they were in the, they were just in the, they had so many playoff games in the nineties that he amassed so many unbelievable stats, but um, Whitey Ford just, you know, he's that iconic guy that, that every time uh, the Yankees are, are talking or you see a Yankees pitcher on old timers day, or anytime they're, they're talking about uh, the New York Yankees and the pitching side of it, it always goes to Whitey Ford. Like he's he's the guy. He's the uh, he's the chairman of the board. So yeah, he's a he's an icon for sure. Number seven is the captain, Derek Jeter. And a lot of people might be thinking, well, why do you have him ranked that low on the list? And simply put, it's just because the Yankees have so many other iconic players. Jeter won the Rookie of the Year when he burst onto the scene in 1996. And you guys had a great uh, take in the Showalter. I think it was Andrew in the Buck Showalter replacing Joe Torre episode uh, last week that if it wasn't for him putting Jeter in the starting lineup, who knows if Jeter has that same type of trajectory that he does, but Jeter makes 14 all-star games, wins the gold glove five times, five-time World Series champion, Silver Slugger award five times, 
you just look at all of these numbers that he put up over the course of his career, it's hard to really point to what is the best year, but I would probably say that Jeter's best year would be 1999. He had a career-high 102 RBI, the only year in his career in which he drove in over 100 runs. He hit 349 that season. That was his highest batting average ever. Led all of baseball with 219 hits. He made the All-Star team every year from 98 to 2002. Didn't make it in 03, made it in 04, and then every year from 06 to 2012, and then in his final season in 2014. I mean, it's so hard to put the captain this low, but... You know, I think the only reason why he's not higher is that he never won an MVP award and he maybe just didn't have the same run production numbers as a lot of the guys that are higher on this list. Yeah. uh, So he's you you talked about um, what year did you say what you thought was his best? I thought it was 99, but you can make an argument uh, for 98 as well. Yeah. Well, and there were also a couple of years where he just, you know, was not the, he was unfortunate as far as MVP when you're, when, you know, he lost it to, um, to Morneau in, uh, 06, I think it was, uh, he was definitely one of the guys that, I mean, he, I think you look back at those numbers and you, you, you very easily could make an argument for, uh, Derek Jeter, but it was at around the time also where, where these MVPs were going to the big power guys. So you had a, a guy like Derek Jeter who was, you know, in the two spot or lead off occasionally had, um, you know, he didn't have those big power numbers. He he hit for average, had a lot of base hits, uh, a lot of doubles. So he was a guy that wasn't, I think, looked uh, on uh, as as highly as an MVP type candidate. Uh, and also, there is a relative Yankee bias depending on who you talk to. But um, it's 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 a it's tough to knock him for that. I think my number seven was actually Mariano Rivera. So I had some some flippage here because um, I think Derek Jeter because he's a because he's a um, everyday player. A position player. I had him just a, a notch higher, but obviously these two guys are interchangeable with, you know, how they were such a big, um, you know, part of the nineties teams. Mariano Rivera is a guy who was a failed starter coming up through the system uh, from Panama. You see all the, the old videos of him talking about how they used to use like cardboard boxes for gloves and, you know, rocks for balls. And like, that's how they started out. But Rivera was a failed starter. Couldn't, uh, couldn't master multiple pitches. So he just decided to master one and it happened. He tells the story because it happened as an accident, the cutter, you knew it was coming. You still can't hit it. And that's, that's one of those. That's just one of those things where you think of a player who's throwing literally one pitch for, you know, you know, what's coming. He, he threw, uh, you know, a couple more pitches, but variations of a fastball, but you knew that cutter was coming. You knew it was going to break your bat. You knew it was going to be on your hands and you either couldn't swing uh, you couldn't lay off of it, or you definitely couldn't hit it. It would saw you off. So he was uh, just one of those impressive guys who had such a, a, a deep run as well and such a such a rock in the Yankees playoff run. I actually have Mo a little bit higher, and you might be surprised as to why, but my number six is Yogi Berra. Three-time MVP. He finished top five in the MVP voting from 1950 until 1956. He made the all-star team every year from 48 to 62 he was an 18 time all-star career 285 hitter I mean this guy was a stalwart for the Yankees he played all but one or rather all but four games in his career with the Yankees he played four games in 1965 with the Mets and if I'm not mistaken that's when he was the player manager for the Mets uh maybe I have that wrong I'm pretty sure I probably have that wrong but he had over a we like to forget. We like to forget that you are a match. That is, uh, that's fair. That's totally fair. 
even though he managed them too. He had over 100 RBI five times, and then he also had from 48 until 56, he never had below 88 runs batted in, and only one of those years he had below 90 runs batted in. And Yogi Berra is just one of the most lovable figures because of the quirks of him and and the things that he would say, like, it ain't over till it's over. And I still remember when I was a little kid watching that Geico commercial with uh, Yogi Berra and just watching the duck and everybody in that barbershop all confused. But, I mean, Yogi Berra won. He did it at a high level for a long time. I mean, 18 all-star appearances. Very rarely do you see anybody get to that total. Yeah, it's pretty crazy how how often he was there, right? I mean, he was there practically every single year of his career except for three and there was a, I think there was some service time in there somewhere as well after his uh six uh, I forget what year he was definitely uh had left at some point but they um the guy is just not only an icon on the field but off the field like you said he's used to be in those commercials that were hilarious um and he's just a he's been a character around the Yankees for such a long time too and such a good guy and such a he was actually a big uh, so my my number six was Derek Jeter, and this this uh, works out nicely because Jeter and Yogi had such a really good relationship. You'd always see them messing around with each other, uh, you know, whether it was before a game or if Yogi was in town, uh, Jeter was always there talking to him. He really treated him like a you know the elder statesman of the Yankees. He was a like you know a, a grandfather figure, if you will, if Tory was his father figure of the Yankees. And he was a guy that you know he constantly hung around, and I think it really did help him out. Jeter was one of those guys who who um, you know, through osmosis, I think would, would just take in all of the good things from the, he, he recognized, you know, the guys that came before him and really, really, uh, you know, didn't take that for granted and really took advantage of the knowledge and just the way that you go about things, I think with a lot of the players. So um, it was cool. It was always fun to watch those two interact. So I think that we're now venturing into our top five, and this is where it's going to get pretty difficult for a lot of us to really give our who's actually the best. I think our number one is probably going to be the same guy. If it's not, then I think there might yeah. be a revolt on uh, on our listenership. But number <laughs> five for me is the pride of Martinez, California, Joe DiMaggio. And you talk about eras of guys. Garrett came in in the mid to the end of Ruth's reign with the Yankees. And DiMaggio came in at the end of Garrett's. And Joe DiMaggio started his career on an absolute tear. He had at least 125 runs batted in in each of his first six seasons in the big leagues and had over 100 runs batted in in each of his first seven. The best hitting streak of all time, 56 straight games, still hasn't been broken, never will be broken, hit over 29 homers in each of his first six seasons as well. Joe DiMaggio's best year, though, probably came after he returned from the military in 1948 he hit 39 homers, drove in a league-high 155 RBI, hit 320 with a 396 on base percentage. He won the MVP in 1939, 1941, and 1947, and he missed three years because of military service. So of the 16 years that he was an active major leaguer, he missed three from 43 to 45 because of World War II. I mean, Joe DiMaggio was the epitome of consistency. And by the way, I don't know if you necessarily want to associate him with this or not, but he went to Galileo High School in San Francisco, which is the same high school as O.J. Simpson. <laughs> yeah, those are those are two interesting guys in the same breath. Um, the uh, I, I knew he was. I actually didn't know, you know, the the San Francisco tie until I was out there and saw 
whole bunch of Do- Joe DiMaggio things as well. And and when we were looking him up for um, just doing some some stuff for Runk's Pinstripe Show, but he's a guy that's absolutely. So my my number five was Yogi Berra, uh, but we've already talked about him. My number four is DiMaggio, and DiMaggio was was one of the guys like you said he. So it, it always it always baffles me when I look back at some of these guys in these eras with, that left for war. And like you said, 43, 44, and 45, he was away, away from baseball, serving in the military. That's age 28, 29, and 30. The pr- you know, one could argue the prime of your career. Maybe not back then. Maybe the prime was a little earlier, but the physical prime of your of your career is uh is at that at that age. And he missed it. Like those are probably three of his most productive years that he missed. And uh, we're still talking about him as, you know, an all-time all-time great, you know, one of probably the top 10 uh, guys in baseball uh, as far as all-time players. So yeah, DiMaggio was, uh, the fact that he also got on base, I think that's also a, one of those things that's underappreciated today with the swing and miss launch angle. Uh, you strike out or home run, the strategy of the game. DiMaggio was a guy that put a lot of bat to ball, forced you to make a play, and uh, more times than not, found some green with uh, with with the ball. And one last fun fact about him, there was an independent baseball league that operated here in the Bay Area from 2013 until, well, they're still going. I worked in the league for one year. There was a team in Martinez for one year, and they called themselves the Clippers because of Joe DiMaggio. It also helped that it's a port city that's right on the water. So he had a lot of influence on his hometown, and uh, I actually drove by his childhood home once, and it's a pretty basic looking home in downtown Martinez. And I actually had to get it from a local, what the address was. I still don't have it, but, uh, but pretty cool. You're just driving down the main road, in the town and, and you go right by Joe DiMaggio's childhood home. So you gave your number four already. I'll give my number four. And then my number three, my number four was Mariano Rivera. And the reason why is I know that we don't necessarily hold relief pitchers in as high regard as some of the elite position players, but, Mo was the best at what he did, period. There was nobody greater in baseball history at being a closer than Mariano Rivera. And it was lights out time. I mean, every time he came into the game, you were absolutely doomed. Five-time reliever of the year award, 13-time All-Star, World Series MVP, All-Star Game MVP, five-time Rolades Relief Award winner, which is an award that I feel like we don't talk about that much we talk about guys reaching the 300 save club and saying that that's impressive he more than doubled that he had 652 career saves and it might have been more if he hadn't injured himself shagging balls in the outfield in 2012 the only year from 08 to 13 that he didn't make the all-star game watching him growing up it was just a thing of beauty and like you said a guy that basically dominated by throwing one pitch and I think You've seen the modern iteration of Mariano Rivera with the Dodgers' Kenley Jansen, and Mo was proof that you master one pitch and you're going to be able to dominate a generation of hitters. Yeah, and the, I think you know the biggest thing about going or, or mastering that pitch, and you know not only executing it on, you know when you actually throw it, but executing it over an amount of time, the amount of you know consistency that he had in his mechanics and delivery allowed him to. Uh, you know, take that cutter and go year in and year out, whether it's April or it's October, he could, he could go out there and and flawlessly repeat those mechanics and execute that pitch. And you see guys like Kenley Jansen who, you know, have spurts where that thing is nasty, but there's so many moving parts in his, 
uh, in his uh, mechanics that it's hard to keep it consistent over a long period of time. And I think we've seen that with him. Um, and we've seen that with a lot of players. Like he j- it's just not one of those things that can be done. Like he repeated the, the slider mechanics. So textbook, it was so textbook, the, the way that he would throw. I used to, when I would coach uh, pony and little league ball for about 10 years, I would always show kids Mariano Rivera's pitching mechanics. And you know, why are you showing them a closer's pitching mechanics? Well, it doesn't matter. The guy had absolutely flawless pitching mechanics. Everything about the way that he threw was, uh, was amazing. And, if you can repeat that, not 19 years, like you said, he got injured uh, in 2012, but he was uh, he was always in very good condition, always came out ready to go. I think the only blip on the radar for him that that sticks in the memory bank, it's a tough one, but it is it is one, was the uh, 2001 World Series when Luis Gonzalez uh, bloops that little ball over Jeter's head. But why Jeter was in uh, at that particular time, Mr. And Tori, Mr. Tori and I would have a very uh, heated debate about that one as well. So um, he was just a, a model of consistency, like you said, and just a, a pro's pro. I think everybody is entitled to one of those moments, and that really is the only moment in his career in which that happened. On to number three. So this was really difficult for me, Scott, when I was comparing these two guys as numbers. And... I hate to be the one that falls in love with the total home run ball, but I'm going to be the guy that falls in love with the total home run ball, which is why number two is where he is. And number three is where he is the iron horse, Lou Gehrig. Why was he the iron horse? Because he played in so many consecutive games. He played 154 games or more from 1926 to 1938. And that should say that that has an exception of a couple of years where he played 149 games in 1939. He came in on the back end of Babe Ruth's greatness, really right in the mood, right in the middle of Babe Ruth's greatness in the late 20s. He had 173 RBI in 1927, 173 in 1930, 185 in 1931. Everybody thinks about Ruth in the 27 World Series. Guess who was the MVP that year? It was Garrick. Garrick won his second MVP in 1936, where he had 140 where he had 152 RBI, 49 homers. His on-base numbers are absolutely through the roof. He had an on-base of over 450 from 34 to 37. Obviously, in 1939, the disease ALS came and uh, and absolutely just destroyed his career and, and destroyed his life. And, you know, another what could have been if Lou Gehrig had played longer, I mean, he still played 17 years, but it felt like there was a lot more in him if he had been able to to stay healthy. And I know that that's kind of a trivialization of what he went through. Obviously, one of the worst diseases you can imagine. But uh, but Lou Gehrig, the pride of the Yankees, as the movie goes, from New York City, died in New York City, wanted to be a Yankee growing up his whole life and, and did that and did it with uh, the amount of success that's unparalleled. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about the amount of, um, so I had him flip flopped. We'll, we'll get to your number two. He was my number three, but the um, Lou Gehrig was my number two. I, I, the numbers are just stupid. <laughs> the the amount of numbers that he put up, the the um, when you look at numbers on how he drove in runs and just you know obviously big moments where he's coming through and and uh, and you know putting uh, the the at bat together that he needed to do. Uh, the power numbers are insane. Um, and when you look at how many games he played consistently, look, it's a different era. I think when you're looking at these lists also, you have to kind of take the era for what it was. Um, was there 
as much was the pitching as deep back you know in the in the 30s and the 20s when he was playing no it wasn't i guarantee it wasn't so there was there was you know obviously your top flight guys but then you probably had a, a relatively big steep um decline so when you had some of these you know prolific offensive players they feasted on some of these these guys that just couldn't pitch and um, not to diminish any numbers by any means because i think again you take era by era and how you you look at certain players but the guy did absolutely everything. And talking about that 17-year career, 39 is the you know the year that um, that he retired, only eight games, and then 23 and 24 combined, 23 games. So you take three of those off. That's 14 years. Now you're looking at uh, you know the same career length as Don Mattingly, uh, and, and you're putting those those numbers in in perspective. It's pretty wild. So number two, well, you're going to, you got to give your number three. And like you said, we flip flopped. So I'll, I'll let you do a lot of the explanation on your number three, which is my number two, Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle was just one of those guys that, I mean, you look at the, look at the numbers, like we've been looking at some of these guys in the top five and they're, they're absolutely gaudy. Uh, One of the biggest things that always impressed me about Mickey Mantle was the amount of injuries that he had. And how he still went out there, you know, on a on a relatively daily basis and played through, you know, just some just brutal everyday injuries that today would would land a guy on the the IL or the DL for, you know, multiple multiple stints, you know, month, two months. Sometimes guys would sit out a season. Um, but Mickey Mantle came in as the the next great Yankees hitter was, you know, that number that uh that 1961 season when he and Maris were battling back and forth. The Eminem boys were going after the the title for most home runs was something special. And I, you know, if you look back at that story, you could see how, you know, he battled alcoholism. He battled these injuries. He had just such unbelievable, uh, you know, numbers for, for going through what he went through that, you know, Mickey Mantle, not to mention he was a, a dynamic defensive player, um, multiple MVP, three MVPs. It's just a guy that is iconic. And when you talk about like comparisons also, I see a lot of people talking about the Mike Trout, Mickey Mantle comparison. And when you actually throw their numbers up side by side, last time I did this was probably last year at some point, they're they're crazily similar. They're very, very, very crazy similar. And when you look at their profiles, just bodies and uh, the way that they kind of do things, a little different off the field, but they're very similar players. The one thing about Mickey Mantle in, in comparison to Trout is that, and granted, Trout hasn't had the opportunity to, Mantle's playoff, I mean, his World Series numbers are just off the charts. He's the career, he is the career leader in runs, homers, and RBI in the World Series. He had 42 career runs, 18 career World Series homers, and 40 career RBI in 65 World Series games. He played in 12 World Series, helping the Yankees win seven of them, a 20-time All-Star, like you said, a three-time MVP, and something that I didn't know, he's the Yankees' only triple crown winner. So in 1956, when he won his first MVP, he led the he led all of baseball in batting average at 353, homers at 52, and RBI at 130. To think of all the great Yankees that we've had and the fact that he is the only player in Yankees history to win the Triple Crown to me is remarkable. But it just goes to show that he's a guy that hit consistently at a high average, hit a lot of homers, and drove in a lot of runs. And maybe the most impressive stat to me in this modern era of baseball sabermetrics 
He led all of baseball in walks five different times and had nine seasons where he had over a hundred walks. Yeah, that no, he had uh, an unbelievable approach at the plate. I think too, when you look at when you look at Mantle, and I, you're seeing some of these guys on the Yankees where you see these shortened careers that you know what could have been and not to say that he had a shortened career because he didn't it would, he still played for 18 years but when you look at the statistics and you you see where you can see a very clear trail off of numbers um you know probably looking at i mean 64 he had a resurgence here after a down 63 uh but 62 is really the when you look at them stacked together from 1951 to 1962 you see some you know the significant numbers and even taking away 51 uh, his age 19 and 20 season where, uh, or at least the the age nineteen season, where he didn't play get to get the at bats, uh, you know, of a uh, of an everyday player. But starting in fifty two, he played one hundred and forty two games, and then from there played the majority of the seasons. Like that's a guy that was absolutely riddled by injuries at the end of his career, and it's and it certainly shortened what he could do physically because after nineteen sixty four, uh, where he had a bounce back, sixty five, sixty six, sixty seven, and sixty eight were all years where he, you know, definitely struggled compared to what you see before. Guy still battled through things, but um, you you would see career numbers at a much higher level if you didn't have those injuries, uh, you know, at the end of his career, and also if he didn't try to play through those injuries. So now we go to our number one. So this is pretty obvious. It's the great Bambino, Babe Ruth, somebody that did not spend his entire career with the Yankees, spent his first five years with the Boston Red Sox. But it's really funny to me, Scott, Looking through these numbers, his offensive numbers jumped through the roof when it came to the Yankees because he stopped pitching. People forget about his time with the Red Sox that he was an elite pitcher. His 1916 season, he went 23-12 and with a 175 ERA in 323 innings of work. But he comes to the Yankees, and from 1920 until 1934, He never hit below 300 all but two times in 29 and then in 34 at the end of his Yankees career. He led the league in homers, counting this up here because I didn't have it written down. In a lot of years. He led the league in homers 12 different (laughs) times. Yeah. So the amount of 100-plus RBI seasons, the amount of 130-plus RBI seasons is through the roof. The All-Star game didn't come into existence until 1933, which is why Ruth is only a two-time All-Star. And his only MVP award, believe it or not, came in 1923 when he hit 393 with a 545 on base percentage, 41 homers, 130 RBI. Obviously, people talk about his 1927 season when he hit 60 homers, drove in 165 runs. But the thing that's most impressive to me is his 486 on base percentage that year. He has these gaudy on base numbers. He was over 500 in on base percentage five different times in his career, leading the league all five times. But I mean, what else as the lifelong Yankee fan that I am not, what else can you add about Babe Ruth that people somehow leave out? Well, I, you know, when you think about Babe Ruth, too, you, you have to look at what a transcendent player he was at the time as well. And just what a, I mean, a godlike figure he was to so many people off the field too. I think when you, I like to look off the field that to be, you, you can see a, um, an interesting story of a player when you look to see how they were off the field and kind of what transposed over there as well. And he was just, 
you know, you see all the the images of him literally wearing, you know, a king crown and a robe. And like they would uh, at the end of his career, like he had uh, him, him and Garrick would go on some of these, um, you know, these tours where they'd go around and put on like a roadshow, essentially. Like, there are just so many interesting and cool things that you look back and how they were, um, you know, the allure of what Babe Ruth was as a uh, as a player off the field too but yeah you look at the um the pitching that he came over i mean obviously it's a it's a deal when you come from the uh you get purchased by the new york yankees from the red sox it's one that you know was uh, said to be a curse for the for the red sox for a very long time up until 2004 the the dreaded year of 2004 um but you know he's a guy that that came over uh and i probably rooted that that rivalry for for years to come so you can look back and and certainly uh, say that Babe Ruth was the big reason why the Yankee, why Boston and New York don't like each other. Uh, so he started a rivalry of two cities that, you know, went, oh, is still going on, but was so intense, intense for uh, the good part of a century. That's something to tip your cap on. I think that's, that's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty impressive feat. Scott Ryan and the Bronx pinstripe show. Thanks for coming on and doing this with us today. But before I let you go, uh, give the listeners a plug for where they can find you, where they can find the Bronx pinstripe show, George's box, everything else that you guys have going on your network. Yeah. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, just first name, last name, Scott Ryan. And then everything for Bronx pinstripes that we do is uh, at Bronx pinstripes on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all the, uh, all the social medias. Uh, and then, uh, Yankees podcast at Yankees podcast on Twitter is our, is our handle for, uh, the actual show, but you see a lot of it go through Bronx pinstripes. Um, but we have editorial and, uh, you know, a few different podcasts. Like you mentioned, George's box, uh, I got a new one, some younger guys, the, the boys at 161st street bring a new element to, you know, Yankee fandom, I think. So Greg, I appreciate you having me on, man. Uh, it was a lot of fun and, uh, you know, look forward to doing it again sometime. Absolutely. Scott Ryan of the Bronx Pinstripe Show, everybody. Have a great rest of your day. And as always, we'll catch you in the AM.